Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. Happy Halloween, Katie. Happy Halloween. Welcome to our Halloween special. Halloween special. Do you remember Simpsons Halloween specials back in the day? They were the best. Oh, so nostalgic. All things Halloween. I think we are both great are the best. Right. So for this Halloween special, we are going back to some of our previous guests and looking forward to one of our future guests for some spooky Halloween women's history. Like ghost stories? Ghost stories, witch stories, Mm. mysterious deaths, seances. We've got it all. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. So first... We head to Lancashire for one of the most famous witch stories in history. Ah. The Pendle Witches. Mm-hmm. Do you know about the Pendle Witches? I do indeed. Oh, man. But tell me. <laughs> <laughs> for this story, we go to Mary Sherritt from our episode on Alma Mahler. Alma Mahler, yeah. She's a brilliant historical novelist who is focused on bringing historical women back to life and giving their voices back. Who boy does she succeed in this novel, <laughs> Daughters of the Witching Hill. I loved this book. Most of my study of witch trials has focused on America and on Germany, so mm-hmm. I didn't know very much about this. But the thing that I loved the most about her take on this is that you see this story through the eyes of the women who are accused. So you are, mm. and so it's very humanized, and she walks this perfect line of letting the readers decide what's going on. Cool. In 1612, in one of the most meticulously documented witch trials in English history, seven women and two men from the Pendle region were hanged as witches, condemned by so-called evidence provided by a nine-year-old girl and her brother, who probably suffered from learning difficulties. I'm American, as you know, I was born in Minnesota. In 2002, I moved to the Pendle region in Lancashire in Northern England. And this is a very rugged Pennine landscape that borders the West Yorkshire Dales. It's very kind of windswept. There's all this beautiful moorland. And my study window looks out on Pendle Hill. It's famous throughout the world as the place where George Fox received his ecstatic vision that moved him to found the Quaker religion Mm. in 1652. But Pendle Hill is also steeped in legends of the Pendle witches. So I moved to this region knowing nothing about the Pendle witches, but they are everywhere. Can't look anywhere without seeing some kind of image of a witch. They even have a whole fleet of local buses with witches on broomsticks on each bus, and each (laughs) bus is named after one of the Pendle witches. It's amazing. I just thought they were part of the local folklore, like fairy tale figures. But then I read their history and I was blown away because it's very, very sad. These women and men were real and they died because of other people's ignorance. So the Pendle Witch Trials ended with 10 people being hanged for the crime of witchcraft. The women who were regarded as sort of the head witches of what the officials saw as this coven were known as Old Demdike and Chaddix. And their families were sort of competing dynasties of cunning folk, of practitioners of white magic or 
according to the government, black magic against the people of Pendle in Lancashire. At least for me, and especially in the way that we talk about it in America, the way that we frame witch trials mm-hmm. are that these women were either completely innocent and the victims of just hysteria, random hysteria, or maybe they were weird, right? They were mentally ill or they were foreigners or there was something about them that made people not trust them, but that they were not doing any witchcraft, of course. Right. And here, it's much more complicated. Many of these people are occupying this middle space of being a blesser or a healer. And that that was a perfectly acceptable job. That for many people, this is a way to make a living. Yeah. It's not seen as witchcraft. It's seen as religious. Yeah. But if you don't succeed in saving the child or the animal, how easy it is for people to accuse you and slide into, oh, now you're a bad witch. Yeah. It makes it much more complicated where these women land now under these new rules, and especially in terms of the magistrates actively hunting for witches that King James says are everywhere. Yeah. Well, that's who you're going to look at first, of course. was um, a widow who lived in a place called Malkin Tower with her widowed daughter named Elizabeth and her three grandchildren, Allison, Janet, and Jamie. And they were very poor. Without the cunning craft, they would be reduced to begging or doing day labor and so forth. So they were at the bottom of a social totem pole. And yet, because she had these powers, these charms, people, before they arrested her anyway, they respected her and they called on her to heal their cattle and their children. Her granddaughter, though, was a teenager at the time she came to trial, Allison. She was the first to be accused of witchcraft and the last to stand trial. What really moved me was when she was giving testimony just the day before she was hanged for witchcraft, her last recorded words were this passionate vindication of her grandmother's powers as a cunning woman and healer. And that was just so moving to me. There have been other books written about them. Most of them have really demonized these people or kind of like done for the kind of schlocky horror movie treatment of them. I really wanted it to tell it from their point of view, to present them as cunning women, as heroines, and give them what their world denied them, their own voice, their own story. The trial itself might have never happened had it not been for King James I's obsession with the occult. This guy had issues. And he even wrote a book called Demonology, which was a witch hunter's handbook that his magistrates were expected to read and follow. This is 17th century. This is England. This is the Reformation. So we're very much in Margaret Clitheroe territory. But we're later. We are under James, who is not a fan of the Catholics. Right. And is much more determined to remove them Uh from his country. (laughs) He was motivated by Guy Fawkes and his conspirators attempting to blow up the entire House of Parliament and (laughs) with everyone in it and the whole royal family. I guess that would probably make you a little mad. Yeah. So Guy Fawkes and the whole 5th of November gunpowder plot kind of triggered this whole wave of anti-Catholic sentiment all across England, almost bordering on mob violence that nobody could control anymore. That leads into what I hadn't realized how tied together in England Catholicism and witchcraft are, and that it seems to be an almost interchangeable charge. Mm -hmm. Many of the things which are being branded as witchcraft are really just hanging on to Catholicism. If you are saying the prayers that you're not allowed to say anymore, if you are heard saying the paternoster over an animal or something, that this can immediately be branded as witchcraft. (laughs) 
So in this region, all of the poor for hundreds of years have been taken care of by this monastery. Oh, yeah. And that's their function, you know, to sort of care for the poor and make sure that everyone is okay. And when the monasteries are dissolved. Right. There goes the safety net. There's no safety net. And all of the social contracts are upended. Mm -hmm. And so many more women are pulled into this kind of a job trying to navigate this middle space of white magic at the same moment when this becomes incredibly dangerous. Yeah, I wrote a previous book about Hildegard of Bingen, the 12th century abbess. And I think if she, with all her visionary experiences, had been living in this time, she would have been burned as a witch. Absolutely zero tolerance for mysticism. I had that exact thought while I was reading it. (laughs) I was reading your book and listening to some Hildegard von Bingen going, oh boy, she would not have fared well in this time. (laughs) So I read this story and I was so touched and saddened by what these people experienced. And what really struck me when I read the trial transcripts is that of all the people that they arrested, the most notorious of the so-called Pendle witches, the ringleader who supposedly initiated everyone else into witchcraft, she was a woman around 80 years old called Mother Demdike. And she died in prison before she could even come to trial. Yet the trial transcript spent the whole time talking on and on and on about how evil she was, even though she didn't even live to stand trial. The court clerk, Thomas Potts, describes her in the wonderful discovery of witches in the county of Lancaster, his account of the 1612 trials. She was a very old woman, about the age of fourscore years, and had been a witch for fifty years. She dwelt in the forest of Pendle, a vast place fit for her profession. What she committed in her time, no man knows. She was a general agent for the devil in these parts. No man escaped her or her furies. That's not bad for an 80-year-old lady. (laughs) So reading the trial transcripts against the grain, this woman was such a strong heroine. And I wanted to turn the story around and tell it from her point of view. What intrigued me most was although she died in prison before she could even come to trial, they spent all this time trying to condemn her. So she must have been so powerful. And I think they were so afraid of her because she was a woman who embraced her powers wholeheartedly. She freely admitted to being a healer and a cunning woman, a practitioner of folk magic. She was proud of what she did. And what's amazing to me was not that she eventually was arrested, but that she worked her whole life. Only at the end of her long productive career did anybody dare mess with her. So as Mary Sherritt mentioned, the main witness against the Pendle Witches was a nine-year-old girl named Janet Device. She was the granddaughter of Old M. Dyke. So she's testifying against her own family. Because of the testimony of this nine-year-old girl, her mother, her brother, her sister, her grandmother, a neighbor woman, and her daughter, and several other unrelated people are all found guilty of witchcraft and hanged. Now, in any other circumstance, this would not have been allowed. A nine-year-old cannot testify in a trial. But King James has waived that rule in cases of witchcraft. And it certainly seems that this girl was taken advantage of, perhaps by the magistrate, didn't understand what she was doing, or had a serious grudge against her family, because she's giving testimony to their faces with them in the courtroom. No. We don't know for sure what happened to Janet Device, but there is a woman named Janet Device in the region who is herself hanged as a witch about two decades later. Oh my gosh. And while it's possible that it's a different woman, it's a pretty unusual name. And she may have suffered the same fate that she perhaps unknowingly sent her own family to. I wanted to immortalize them with this book. Their spirits inhabit the landscape. 
it's still very magical. I feel that they become guardian spirits. I felt Mother Demdike's presence very strongly when I was writing the book. I would go on long walks or rides with my horse in the areas that she would have walked. I've gone to the place where Demdike and her family lived in Malkin Tower. It's just magical. And I almost felt like I heard her voice dictating the story. Her voice came through very powerfully. That's why it's told in first person in this Lancashire dialect. She was dictating it to me. She wanted to tell her story in her voice. Next, we head back to episode two. Oh, Pearl DeVere. Pearl DeVere. We're going to Cripple Creek, Colorado. Yay. For another visit to the old homestead. Tell me it's ghosts. It's ghosts. Yes. So, Katie, I, our whole family is kind of this unusual relationship, maybe, with ghosts and ghost stories in that we are all really enthusiastic about the idea of ghosts that we we spend a lot of time sort of talking and speculating about ghost stories our parents are regulars on the ghost tour circuit so where do you land on this spectrum of ghost believing in our family kind of i've landed on a phrase for myself which is that i believe in ghost stories okay i love that (laughs) we may remember from episode two that our guest charlotte bumgardner is fairly positive that pearl and many of the girls at pearl's famous parlor house are still there Mm -hmm. but first just a reminder of who pearl is in case some of our listeners have not yet heard that episode we recommend it yes pearl devere was one of the most famous and most successful madams in the american west In Cripple Creek, Colorado, at 10,000 feet, she ran what I believe to be the most genius (laughs) marketing campaign for a brothel in human history. She came up with amazing new ways to grant herself power Mm. in a society that gives women almost no power. So this was in the late 1800s. Late 1800s. The gold rush almost everywhere is just kind of dying out and it's just getting started in Cripple Creek. Well, she's kind of elusive. She hasn't given us all of her secrets. She came to Denver first and was a prostitute in Denver. She's recorded to be in Denver under the name of Mrs. Ed Martin. I believe that's because when a woman moved to a new town with a baby, she said she was a widow and called herself Mrs. Something. Right. I don't know much else about her, unfortunately, other than I love her. She still is a presence in this house. She tells me things once in a while. Hmm. But other than that, I I just know that she was very beautiful, very loving, and very giving. In 1891, gold was discovered here in Cripple Creek. And so she ended up here, we believe, in the winter of 1892, the best we can tell, and had a house of prostitution here on the lot where we sit now. It burnt down in 1896, and she rebuilt the house we're sitting in that fall in 1896. And she's wildly successful and creates this incredibly successful business model uh, before she died. We talked in the original episode with Charlotte Bumgarner about Pearl's mysterious death. Yeah. And that it oh, may right. have poisoning, been, right? It may have been. Mm-hmm. I read that there was some not very well accepted speculation that she may have killed herself, but Oh no, wasn't there's really no any way reason. my Pearl killed herself. Right. She wouldn't have killed herself over some man. She just flat wouldn't have done it. That of course, maybe that's just because I worked in her house for twenty two years <laughs> and I feel that about her. But no, I think she was too much of a businesswoman, too, had too much going for herself to have killed herself over a man. She used to bug me a lot like there was something she wanted me to know. And finally, one day there was a lady in here who was intuitive. And she looked at me and she goes, do you know that Pearl's death was an accident? And I said, well, I believe so. And she goes, yeah, it wasn't morphine. It was some other drug meant to kill Maud. 
and that has been confirmed by three other intuitives. And since that time, Pearl seems more relaxed and she doesn't bug me. So do we know who Maud was? Maud was one of the the girls, girls. and that's whose room she was sleeping in. So about 10 o'clock, Maud realized she was Mm. having difficulty breathing and was disoriented, and they called a doctor, and she didn't die till about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. It's very logical that, you know, because all the girls, even women, good women, or if they called themselves, (laughs) uh, used morphine almost daily because it wasn't a controlled substance back then. And there probably was a bottle of morphine on the side of the bed, so the doctor called it a morphine overdose. But it very easily could have been another drug in that vial that was meant for Maud to get, but Pearl. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. She had a a lavender coffin, which was pretty unusual for Mm. the time. Lots and lots and lots of pink flowers, I'm told. There was every lady from this street and hundreds of the miners marched with her to the cemetery. But she also had the 40-piece Elks Brass brand (gasps) and four mounted police escorted her Mm. to the cemetery. But yeah, it was quite a, quite an affair. The band played all the appropriate music, we're told, up the hill, um, mm. including Goodbye, Little Girl, Goodbye. But mm. as they turned for home, the girls started singing and the band started playing It'll Be Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight, <laughs> which Pearl would have loved. Yeah. Uh, and she, her black stallion pulled her carriage down the street with the seat filled with pink flowers. Oh. In that good, good old town where you know so here's what we didn't include in the original episode. While I was conducting this interview in the old homestead, as we were talking about ghosts, Charlotte Bumgarner let me know that if we started talking about them, they were going to come visit. Oh. I just feel them. Um, hmm. They walk by and touch me. Um, hmm. I've had some of my tour guides smell strong rose right. cologne that they would have worn back right. then. A um, couple of them have walked in in the morning and felt smelled cigar smoke really um and we found dents in the beds a couple of times where they've sat on the bed um mm. so we know they're here i they're all friendly yeah. um, nothing nothing scary about them good i believe pearl is here like i said she used to bug me a lot um i don't feel her near as much as i used to but uh, about a year ago, I said, Pearl, you got to give me a sign. Are you still here or not? And um, the clock over your corner chimes six times, and it hasn't uh, wound in 30 years. So, And I said, okay, Pearl, I, I know you're here, and that's all that matters. So, yeah. so when I was originally editing this footage, I was working downstairs in my house, and I could hear my kids stomping around upstairs. And so I kept calling up to them to stop stomping around upstairs and they kept insisting that they weren't moving they were sitting quietly and i realized that what i was hearing was not in my house it was on the recording it's soft enough that probably our listeners won't be able to hear it unless they're listening on headphones but if you pay attention throughout some of charlotte's interview with me you will hear what sounds like people walking around upstairs there was no one upstairs the first thing i did was tour the museum i was There's no way that anyone was upstairs, and yet, someone on my recording is walking around. She's also had some paranormal investigators come. Those haven't been very successful, (laughs) mostly because they're not very respectful. Oh, interesting. And as Charlotte points out, if this is a high-class establishment, you cannot talk to the girls this way. Interesting. And they're not going to answer your questions if you're rude. Uh, We've done several of those, quote, paranormal investigations. I find them boring. (laughs) I find them, most of the time, the questions they ask the girls are rude, so the girls don't reply to them. Right. I was here one night with one of those paranormals, and... We did get some response from one, somebody mm-hmm. uh, telling us she was 16 and, and happy. So, uh, But most of the time they don't get much because they ask them rude questions, mm. you know. Yeah. they. You need to be polite. Yeah, you got to be polite to them. They're not going to pass their application if they're <laughs> asking rude questions. And, of course, there is the cook. Pearl had a famous cook. This cook was not a fan of men. I can't imagine why (laughs) working in a parlor house might give you a negative view of men. 
and apparently she continues to not like men. <laughs> Mary the cook is here. She doesn't like men. And if you're here about supper time, she gets pretty feisty. Um, she doesn't get mean, but she just tries to chew you out. I used to have this guy that came visited a lot, and if he was here about five or six o'clock in the evening, which would have been when she would have probably been starting right. dinner, he would feel a very strong presence chewing him out, you know. So. <laughs> There's a girl upstairs who have told us her name is Peggy. Uh, she six, was 16, um, has congratulated us on help. You know, she loves the story we tell about them and uh, that we honor them. Okay. Uh, we have one in Molly's room, um, one of the bedrooms upstairs. She seems to be very, very sad. Uh, this summer was the first time we had an experience with a man ghost. He was standing behind my daughter telling her to get out. I know we have them. Um, they like to be talked about. Oh, good. I was going to um, say they, they're cool with us having they're this cool. conversation. Yeah. Now, one thing we need to know here is that for several years, the museum was owned by a casino next door that was mean. <laughs> the casino owners next door pulled some shady stuff and convinced the museum owners that it would be fine if the casino owned it. They would help protect it and keep it safe. They did not. They immediately took over the back half of the museum for offices. Now, Charlotte Baumgartner won in that big, big fight, and the museum still stands. Yay! But during the time that they took over the back office, some pretty interesting things happened. A couple of incidents happened when the, the casino had, the mean casino, yeah. had taken over the back of this house and turned it into office space. Mm -hmm. They've heard music playing in here at night, oh. like at two or three in the morning. Um, the one girl said they often had stuff thrown off their desk back there, but of course. <laughs> That was probably Mary, because they were in her area, in her. <laughs> you know. And one lady told me she looked up one day and seen a red handprint on the door. <sighs> and she was getting ready to call maintenance to come clean it up, and it disappeared. Oh. So that back area is pretty common. There was a security guard who said he frequently heard music over here, and he'd come check on wow. it. They didn't last long. <laughs> I told him I'd be here longer than them, and, and we're still here, <laughs> Pearl and I. Well yeah, done, Pearl, Pearl, getting them out. <laughs> they didn't know how to run a casino anyway. But <laughs> so, if you're ever in Colorado, I cannot recommend Cripple Creek any more highly. It's mm. wonderful. It's about an hour outside of Colorado Springs. The whole town is a, a delightful mix of really well-preserved and total ruins. Cool. And I gotta get there. Yeah. Yep. And definitely, definitely make sure the old homestead is on your tour. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every crate features an inspiring woman, her own unique story of why she's awesome, a 28-page activity book, and everything you need to complete two to three STEAM activities, crafts, experiments, and more. I know how hard it is to find toys and activities that inspire girls to follow their own dreams, but Girls Can Crate makes it easy and helps assure that that inspiration and that time together is built in every month. There's even a mini crate for families that are very busy or looking for an even more affordable option. And for our listeners, if you go to girlscancrate.com, girlscancrate.com, and use the code HERNAME, all one word, you can get 20% off your first box on any order. Check them out now at girlscancratecrate.com. And when you order, make sure you use the coupon code HERNAME, all caps, so that they know we sent you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Next up, mm-hmm. we go back to magician, mentalist, and anthropologist Ooh, Paul Draper. Yay. From our episode, The Disappearing Woman on Adelaide Herman. Awesome. Paul also shared with us a little bit about Bess Houdini. Cool. Who was married to Harry Houdini, mm-hmm. the famous, but not as famous as Adelaide Herman magician. Right. So this is a fun story about how Bess Houdini kept Houdini's name alive. As we know, Houdini became fascinated at the end of his life with the spiritualist movement. It was the fastest growing religion in the world at the time. Uh, over a third of Americans at the time claimed spiritualism as their religion. It had, it had taken the hearts and minds of such famous people as Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-creator of the theory of evolution, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who a- almost became the St. Paul of spiritualism and toured the world talking about the new science of spiritualism. And even uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln, held seances in the White House to try and contact her, her son who had passed. Houdini was fascinated with the idea that maybe he could reach through the veil to contact his mother who had passed. And of course, he wasn't able to, but he set up a plan with, uh, with his wife, Bess, that after his death, he would try to escape death, he had escaped everything else on earth, and come back to interact with her. And he gave her a secret code word that he would use if he was able to reach through. He died, interestingly enough, Houdini passed away on Halloween night of 1926 at the age of 52 after a punch to the stomach by a Canadian boxer that he wasn't ready for in his dressing room, ruptured his appendix. And so every year on Halloween night, on the anniversary of his death, on his Yortzeit in Judaism, right? Instead of his wife simply lighting a candle and saying the Yortzeit prayer, she lit a candle as a beacon to try and bring his spirit back to earth with a, with a seance. She was Catholic, he was Jewish, but this was spiritualism, something completely other. And she held these large public seances that she ran for 10 years. That he is will give her brilliant. the code word so that she knows that this medium is not tricking her. No one else knows the code word. I love that. Amazing. As we noted in the Adelaide Herman episode, most of Harry Houdini's fame is post-mortem. Yeah. Because he leaves half of his money to Bess Houdini Mm -hmm. and half of his money for her to continue to promote his career. Uh Uh-huh. And she does an excellent job of that. That's a weird move to make with your fortune. You leave half of it to your wife and then half of it, (laughs) like, like, earmarked. Right. For your own posthumous fame. <laughs> but your wife, it's your wife's job to right. make you famous. Yeah, and I, I wasn't sure how I felt about that. I've never been sure how I feel about that mm-hmm. idea. But Paul Draper had a really good point. It kept her in money because uh, in the same way that when Elvis Presley died, his manager, the colonel, was called and they said to him, so Elvis has died. He said, all right, I will continue to manage his career He will just no longer be taking live bookings. And that's part of why Elvis stayed alive and why it continued to create money was because there was someone who continued to manage the career, just no more live appearances. Mediums, seance mediums, and the Houdini Society have continued to hold uh, seances every year on Halloween night since his death. I was the official medium in San Francisco just a few years ago. But she kept his name alive and the Houdini history alive by every year continuing these seances. And that's why even today, when you ask children to name magicians, they name Merlin, Gandalf, Harry Potter, and Houdini. Bess Houdini was an amazing woman. Hmm. Bess Houdini 
was Wilhelmina Beatrice Radner or Rayner. She was born in Brooklyn, New York. She was from German immigrants. She was Catholic. She was working in Coney Island in a song and dance act called The Floral Sisters when she first met Houdini's younger brother, uh, Theo, Theodore Hardin, later he went by. But it was the older brother Houdini, Eric Weiss, who became Harry Houdini. He fell in love. They got married in 1894. They worked together when he was the king of cards, long before he became the handcuff king. He invented an effect called the metamorphosis trunk, where he would be tied up and put inside of a box. It's still performed by thousands of magicians today. And then she would stand on top, throw a curtain up, come down, and he is transformed into her. You unlock the box and she's now in the box and he's escaped or the other way around. On the final seance in 1936, it was led by her and Dr. Edward Saint on the top of the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, California. Though there was no contact from Houdini and the secret message was not passed, they do say that as the seance concluded, it rained just on that block <laughs> and nowhere else in Hollywood. And the seance was on the roof of the building, the Knickerbocker Hotel that's still there a block away from the Magic Castle in Hollywood, California, uh, and that maybe that rain was a sign. Her final line at the end of the seance was, Mr. Saint said, Miss Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. It is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini Shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. That reminds me of Adelaide Herman, too. Like, that is a genius way to shut down spiritualism. You know, yeah. like expose it over the slowly, gently over the course of 10 years. Yeah. Say, here you go, everyone. I was in it with you, but if it's anyone clear could have now. Done it. Yeah. And she gives them 10 years to <laughs> work to their way. themselves yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. After Houdini died, she opened a tea house in York. She had a vaudeville act that she performed in and produced for a while. She worked with her manager, Edward Saint, who did these seances with her. They conducted the final seance. She eventually died of a heart attack in Needles, California. Her family would not let her be interned with her husband at the Jewish cemetery. Instead, she's interned at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne, New York. So after all of that, even after her death, they continued to be separated, buried in separate cemeteries. But she did succeed spectacularly in her goal of keeping Houdini's legacy alive. We do have one more connection to talk about. So here's my funny connection to Houdini. Houdini died at the age of 52. Like there are 52 cards in a deck of cards on Halloween night of 1926. 52 years later, in 1978, I was born on Halloween night. At 52 years old, I'll start to worry. Yeah. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so it's got to mean something. Right. Reincarnated? Maybe he's Houdini. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Did he say he wasn't? He didn't deny it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Finally, we go to Sharon Wright, who will be featured on an upcoming episode of What's Her Name? Okay. She is a journalist and author. Her book, Balloonomania Bells, was released this year. 
about the history of women hot air balloonists. Cool. I knew nothing <laughs> about hot air ballooning in general, let alone women hot air balloonists. And it is delightful. I love this book. Awesome. I love the whole subject. It, I'm totally smitten. Cool. So in a future episode, we will be talking about another groundbreaking female aeronaut. Mm -hmm. But today we're talking about a British woman named Lily Cove, who was a famous aeronaut and parachutist in the early 1900s in England. At this point, all of England and most of Europe is consumed with frenzy about hot air balloons and has been for decades. This is almost the tail end of hot air balloons, which started way earlier than I anticipated. The first hot air balloons were in the late 1700s. And it was such a wildly popular pursuit that it was known as the balloon influenza because people got so excited. There were multiple balloon riots where people just got so excited and out of control that they would rip the balloon to shreds or just couldn't contain themselves anymore. Miss Lily Cove was who set me off on this whole journey, actually. My first job was as a cub reporter in West Yorkshire. I came across the story of Lily Cove, who died in 1906 in mysterious circumstances. And she's featured in this book, but Sharon Wright has also very kindly allowed us to use some clips here from a play that she wrote called Thriller, which was performed two years ago cool. in Pondon Hall. And we're going to talk about the significance of that in a minute. It was a one-night-only performance on Halloween, mm. talking about the life and death of Lily Cove. Introducing old Blighty's most famous lady parachutist. Roll up, roll up. See her breathtaking leap from a hot air balloon. Gasp! At her frilly bloomers, bloomers that had them hot under the collar and the ass of commons, no less. The great and the good debating her naughty knickers. Lily Cove established her territory in this field of female aeronauts with two things. She was famous for ripping off her skirt. Before ascending <gasps> and ascending in her bloomers. What? That's the name of the play Friller, the frills <laughs> of her bloomers Ta -da! before ascending. Wow. Well, why? Because you can't wear a skirt if you're going to parachute. Oh, no, you couldn't. It would just catch the air and I mean, fill the other up women and... did. So I think it was just because she wanted to wear bloomers and oh, it was okay. a good gimmick. <laughs> also... Unlike most of the other aeronauts, male or female, she would not ascend in a basket. She would ascend hanging onto a trapeze under a hot air balloon. <laughs> what? Really? Like hanging on by her hands? I, I think strapped in oh, into a okay. rig, maybe with a rig hanging <laughs> her. There's a, a photograph of her oh, cool. dangling under a hot air balloon on a trapeze. I just remembered, hundreds though, of feet in the air. that this is the Halloween special. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> isn't as delightful as you I think it is. You might guess right now. that this is not going to be a happy <laughs> oh, <ending>. no. <laughs> she did many successful uh -oh. ascents and descents. Uh huh. And then oh. one unsuccessful. No. And no one can really explain what happened. Oh, no. Everything was going as normal. She detached herself and began her descent with her parachute. Uh-huh. With crowd of thousands watching. And somehow became detached from her parachute. No. And fell to her death. No. In the football field oh. of Pondon Hall. Oh, no. Which is... Some of our listeners are probably going, <gasps> because Pondon Hall inspired Wuthering Heights. Oh, this is Bronte territory. Oh, my gosh. And Emily was living in the town next door when she wrote Wuthering Heights. And, and Pondon oh. Hall is Wuthering Heights. Wow. So real and fictional tragic things oh. happening here at Pondon Hall. Lily died in 1906 in mysterious circumstances at the Howarth Gala. Howarth is where the Bronte sisters lived. So this would have been several decades after, but still within living memory. 
And um, she was lovely and feisty and people loved her and she was a good old girl and she was talking up everybody in the bar and before and she went up and then she came apart from her parachute and she crashed to earth. It made headlines around the world. It was a leader in the New York Times. She crashed to her death in the field, was found with her eyes open and seeming still alive but unresponsive and died. They moved her to the hotel she died and had broken most of her bones. Ugh. Now, what happened? How do you suddenly just become detached from your parachutes? Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll let Lily tell us. Or at least Lily, as played by Charlotte Knowles in the play Thriller. Let me tell you about the beginning first. So, me and the governor, we talked to the road. Fred was my teacher and I was his pupil, learning to be an aeronaut. Think on that, an aeronaut. Not some freezing flare cell or skibby to the knobs. Oh, just me and the wind in the air. Nothing like it. Not ever. Thoroughly modern Lily. Quite turn their heads. Four could come from miles around to see her. <laughs> the famous Miss Lily Cove. Leaping Lily, the lady parachutist, the daring balloonist in bloom, as they said. Here, a town with gala. Like a daring angel she were, in her frilly bloomers and gold hair flying. And then, and then she was wriggling about. And then her parachute came off and, and then, and then we all screamed. The official verdict is that this is an accidental death. It is possible that this was a murder. <gasps> it is possible that a jealous former suitor oh. disconnected the parachute before she went up. Either she detached the parachute herself mm -hmm. or someone detached it before she jumped. There were rumors at the time, and it is still a plausible theory that this former suitor or the family of the former suitor may have Boy. taken care of her. But that's extreme. It is extreme. So but it's extreme a length to clever go. way to get rid of I guess so. I mean, the death toll, I am sorry to tell you, for aeronauts is extremely high. <laughs> this is still a very experimental field. Wow. There was talk about young Charlie Merrill being smitten by Lily and him the mill owner's son and his candle brewing. So, Lily could have fallen for him, just like they say, and his family weren't about to have him marrying a showgirl. Or maybe all big made over there were mad with jealousy. Or maybe her poor heart were broken, and she couldn't go on. She never could tell us what had happened, and it made no sense. But we couldn't fathom it. Her young bones were smashed, her blue eyes flung open and blind with shock. And she breathed her lost breath in poor Caroline's arms. That pond and field was my deathbed. What Sharon Wright believes happened is probably that the wind was blowing her too fast and too far toward the reservoir at Scartop. Mm. And she did have an extreme fear of water and drowning. And if she believed that she was going to be blown into mm. the reservoir and drown, she may have panicked yeah. and detached or decided that she would rather fall and die than drown and die. Yeah. And just detached herself and wow. crashed behind Pondon Hall. What did it for me was fear. Blessed, terrified of water I was. Couldn't want learn how to swim. So when I thought I was going to land, splash in that Pondon Reservoir, well, I panicked. Her manager was Captain Frederick Bidmead. He was at the inquest trying to go through what had happened and he said she was just absolutely terrified of water and he tried to get her to take swimming lessons but she absolutely wouldn't. And he thinks that when she was coming down, there's Pondon Reservoir just outside and she saw Pondon Reservoir, totally panicked, thought she was going to hit the water. And who knows, in a panicking mind, she unhooked herself. Mm. So she obviously thought, I can hang on and then I'll, I'll be able to get free if I hit the water. But she wouldn't have hit the water if she'd kept going the thing. That's really sad. 
but it is awful. But the play is delightful <laughs> and was performed in Ponden Hall awesome. for an audience of 20 people only inside wow. the hall with Lily telling her own story. Ah. On Halloween? On Halloween. Awesome. In 2016. And at the end of the play, the owners of Ponden Hall arranged to have a lighted hot air balloon set off outside the house in Lily's memory. Cool. She was laid out in her hotel room in the nearby village, and hundreds attended her funeral. It was a major mourning event. She was a crowd favorite. I mean, if you jump from hot air balloons and bloomers, how can people not love you? That's Moxie. They carry me on their shoulders when I landed. Oh, like Cleopatra I were. Huge thanks to our guests, Paul Draper, Sharon Wright, Charlotte Bumgarner, and Mary Sherritt. To Charlotte Knowles and Tracy Knowles, who played Lily Cove and Jane O'Ponton in Thriller. And to our voice artists, Dina Brady as Beth Houdini, and Thaddeus Wyland as Thomas Potts. And thank you this month to our Patreon supporter, Leanne Christiansen. If you'd like to learn more about any of the women featured in this episode, about our guests, and find pictures, video, links to books, and lots of fascinating information on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Check out the great prizes and thank yous we have for our patrons, or look at our new Women's History Trading Cards or the cross-stitch patterns available for every woman we've featured, including new patterns for each of the women profiled in today's episode. There's just enough time to stitch the Pendle Witches for Halloween. Music for this episode was provided by the Weber State University Choirs and Orchestra, Amanda Setlick-Wilson, Emma Lou Deemer, Jeremy Dittis, Maria Jeffers, and the College Conservatory of Music at the University of Cincinnati, May Segura Wong, Peak Duo, the MIT Choirs and Symphony Orchestra, Garrick and Anna dunford Meekham, Jeff Kuno, Solis Camarada, The New Hot Five, Half Pelican, and Daniel Henderson. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. Registration is now open on What's Her Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazil Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>